have noticed this because uh, many of you are wearing different coats uh, this evening than a couple weeks ago, but the seasons, oh my friends, they are a-changing, and I think it prompts an opportunity for us to have a moment, come together, share in a little, uh, which season do you like the best? So just for frame of reference, in case you're confused, here are the, here are the four seasons uh, represented in Autry. This isn't a real picture, okay, for those of you that uh, feel as though this could actually happen, all right? Uh, spring, summer, winter, and fall, okay, not in that order, certainly, but I want to know which is your favorite season. So uh, I'm going to start with winter, and then we'll progress. If that's your favorite season, just a, a shout-out, some applause, some cheers, a standout, maybe whatever. So winter, how many people love winter the most? All right, so, Becca, why do you love winter the most? Because of the holidays that are included, okay? The birth of the Son of God, pretty, pretty significant, right? All right? We call it Christmas around here, so you can already get that in your language. How many, how many spring, right? Like, you're like, I'm a spring person. I love spring. Spring's your favorite. Not too many. Denny, Denny, what for, bro? Because you, you're like, you're like... The, the fish are biting in the spring. So you base your seasonal activities based around fishing. I'm sorry about you, brother, okay? Sorry about you. I never like fishing in any season, all right? So maybe you, can, maybe you can teach me something. How many summer people? Wow. Wow. So what is it, what is it about summer? What is it about summer? What, what's that? Everything? No school, okay? We actually, we actually enjoy promoting education here at Matthias, so I can't, I can't uh, confirm or deny that statement, but summer is great uh, for certain. As for me and my house, and maybe some of my fellow friends here, how many are fall people, okay? You like that. Yes. And for me, like, there's a certain smell that goes with football, and so, and so that's why I love the fall, seriously, like. I, I walk out on a 55-degree night, and I can picture the, the Friday night lights coming on, right? And it's just like, mmm, feels so good. Any other thoughts about why the fall's good? Nope, I didn't think so. It's football. So the, the, seasons, the seasons change quickly, especially here in St. Louis. If you don't like seasons, then you move to San Diego, right? Like it's, It seems like it's 65 or 70 all the time. But here in St. Louis, as you know, uh, it's crazy, the uh, fluctuation. Uh, even right now, right? Like a couple days ago, it's, or even yesterday, it's like 65 in the afternoon, and today it's, you know, negative 20, it feels like. It's crazy what happens. That thought is, um, is going to drive us a lot because of a question that I want to ask you. And so, uh, next slide. Let's phrase it this way. Uh, does your view of God change with the seasons? Now, I don't mean it here, does it change with uh, summer or fall or winter or spring? But does it seem like your view of God moves, fluctuates, based upon the things that you're going through, the things you're enduring, your situations, your circumstances? It's like one day you, you see God like this, and then because of these three or four things that happen, it's like all of a sudden your vantage point of who God is like massively changes, just like the temperature between yesterday and today. And if you're like me at all, like that's, that's pretty frustrating. 
It's frustrating that my circumstance can somehow dictate, it feels like, how I view God versus simply God dictating how I view Him. Now, um, the plan was initially to study uh, the whole fall of AI tonight, but I got nine verses in and I was like, we, we can't, like, there is too much in nine verses. And so I am, I am unbelievably excited to say that tonight we're going to get to see and ask the question, post the sin of Achan, does the view of God in the Israelites' minds and hearts change? If you were with us the last couple of weeks, in spite of God saying to Achan and the nation of Israel, don't take anything from Jericho, Achan does. And in the harsh reality, last week we saw at the end, Achan and his sons and his daughters were stoned. God sees every sin, saw the sin of Achan, even though he hid the devoted things literally under his tent. God still sees it. There's massive judgment. And so based on that whole experience, based on that whole scenario, the question tonight will be, will the view of God through the eyes of the Israelites change? Only nine verses. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. I hope you have been as encouraged in Joshua as I have been. It has been an unbelievable journey thus far, and we have plenty more to go by my count at least six years. Here we go. Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, this is right after the stoning of Achan, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land, and my friends, like, we're going to spend about 20 minutes in verse 1 because there is so much happening right here. Like, is anyone else a little bit taken back by the instantaneous statement of the Lord post the tremendous sin of Achan? So sin is dealt with. Remember, what God says, listen, until you get rid of the devoted things, I'm not going to be with you. So they take care of the sin And then the very next statement of God is, do not be fearful or do not be dismayed. I try to think of some statements that that I sometimes feel like in this moment would be appropriate for God to say. So let's look at those because maybe I think you relate to these. Things we believe God might say. Number one, how about this? God might say, I still can't believe you did that to the nation of Israel. We would think the chapter would open with a statement like this, right? Like, I can't, I can't believe it. I mean, seriously, you people, are you kidding me? I, I parted the seas. I stopped up a river. I fed you water uh, from rocks and, and manna from the heavens. And you still aren't trusting me? I can't believe you did that. As I say all the time, we, we often put uh, our human experience on that of our relationship with God. And... A lot of us have heard this statement before from employers, from parents, from spouses, from friends. Uh, We thought we were past uh, the sin or the error, and yet we're met again with the guilt of the 
reality of our past. Anyone? It's like, I can't believe. And you guys know who, who are married here. This is like, the, this is the dagger that we throw. We seem to have reconciled in a marriage. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We hug it out. Everyone's good. And then the next day, like at the moment of duress, I, I can't, I can't believe you did that yesterday. And it's, it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, I, I thought we were good. Like, remember we hugged it out? We kissed even? Like, it, it seemed like everything was great. You sent me that text with the, you know, the cute, you know, kiss emoji. Like, I thought we were fine. This statement has haunted many of you. And so it, it's hard for us to think that God would say, don't be fearful and don't be dismayed. Now, how about this next statement? I think sometimes we think that God might say this. You're a ho- horrible excuse of a people. Look at you, you're my people, the nation of Israel, and right now you are a horrible excuse of an ambassador of me. Uh, God says to the nation of Israel all the time, like, I, I've, I've chosen you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people so that you can be a light to the world. Like, wake up, nation of Israel. And you, you just picture, listen, some of you have heard this from your parents, like throwing their hand up in the air, your horrible excuse for a son. And they were saying it in anger or saying it in frustration, but those of you who have heard this statement before, it has is, it is sank very, very deep. And so it's tough for us to not believe that, that God wouldn't still be reiterating this to the nation of Israel and their sin. How about this one? Next slide. You'll never be who you were meant to be. Not, don't be fearful, don't be dismayed. no. Listen, you're never going to amount to anything, nation of Israel. This is proof. Are you kidding me? Hiding devoted things under your tents. And, and remember, it wasn't just Achan that God's anger burned against. We, we saw it was the whole nation of Israel. One man's sin meant the whole community was impacted. We've said it here in the last several weeks over and over. Our disobedience and our obedience impacts the rest of the body of Christ, as it did with Achan and the nation of Israel. And so we see this statement, right? Like, you'll never, you'll never be who you were meant to be. Seems like God would say that. And finally, how about this? Sit, sulk, and feel the pain until you die. I mean, it seems like this would be a very, very natural thing. It seems like, based on our human experience, for God to say. Next slide. But he he doesn't say that. Can we read it one more time? Do not fear and do not be dismayed are the first words out of the mouth of God post the stoning of Achan. Now, we're just getting started uh, here in verse 1. So I want you guys to see how this verse continues. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. Now, how many did he take to Ai the first time when they uh, fell? Do you guys remember? 3,000. Remember, the spies said, take two or 3,000. Joshua rounded up to three. Took 3,000 because of the disobedience of Achan. You guys remember how many people were killed in that first battle? 36, okay. Uh, three times a baker's dozen. No, actually, never mind. Okay, 36. Three times 12, right? Uh, they die. And so now we, we don't see the command of God being, hey, uh, take 3,000. I want to draw your attention to take all the fighting men. Straight from the mouth of God. And what are they to do? They're to arise and go up to Ai. 
Um, I got so in my heart hung up on that one post-comma statement. Go up to AI. What God is asking his people to do is go back to the place of defeat. Go back to the place where you were overrun. Go back to the place where you retreated. Uh, do you guys remember uh, the song Tub Thumping? You guys remember that song? I think it, was, it came out in 1997. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Nothing ever going to get me down. You guys remember that song? I, I started thinking about that song, Here's Why. I started thinking about the power of music, right? And we all have these songs that we go to when we're having a bad day. You know, some of you say, you've had a bad day. You know, like it's literally that one, right? Um, uh, some of you, it's, it's Rachel Platten's fight song. And I, I just have to be honest, like I fist pump to fight song. You know, I'm just like, yeah, this is my fight song, man. This, you know, and it's kind of weird and I do it mostly alone, but it's, it's, really, it's really powerful. But tub thumping, right? I get knocked down, I get back up again. Like that, that, that is what God is asking the nation of Israel to do. I know you, I know you were beat. I know you were defeated. But I want you to go back. It is so difficult to go back to a place of defeat. Um, For some of you, that place of defeat is God's word. Uh, Every time you read it, you get discouraged because you can't understand it. Uh, Every time you read it, Instead of seeing the words as life, uh, it feels like condemnation. Uh, Because one time uh, someone pointed their finger at you in your face and said, well, you better listen to this. And so for you, every time you think about God's word, it's this place of defeat in your life. Like I can't read it, I can't understand it, I can't study it, so I would rather just stay away from it. Because every time I open it, I get discouraged. Some of you are right there right now. So listen, what if, what if the Lord said, arise and go right back to this place where you feel defeated and watch me move? How about your marriage, somebody? How about parenting? For some of you, those two are realities are a daily reminder of defeat. You walk into the home again, unable to parent your children, and your kids then are a constant source of a reminder of your inadequacy. I wish they would just listen. I wish they would just, like, finally, like, like hug me without me asking. I, I wish I could talk to them. I wish when I asked them a question, they would respond. I, I wish at, at dinner time that, that everyone could just put their devices down and, and pay attention to one another. And, and, you, and you wish and you wish and you wish. You don't know how to rely or trust on the Lord through it. Instead, it's this constant source of defeat. And so what starts happening is, what starts happening is, you start finding yourself backing away from the home. Parents backing away from your children. Fine, they're not going to pursue me. Well, I'm not going to pursue them. They won't talk to me. Fine, I won't talk to them. And slowly over time, you wake up and realize after a year 
that there is an ocean between you and your kids because you weren't willing to go back to the place of defeat. Marriages. Seriously, marriages. A constant, for some of you, source of discouragement. You feel like all you do every day you're together is bicker and fight about the smallest of things. You can't even remember why you're arguing, but it's just like instantly you're snapping at one another, and so it just pushes you farther and farther down and farther and farther away. But what if, listen, what if that constant source of defeat that you feel in your marriage, what if you heard the voice of God say, hold on, hold on a second, don't be afraid, and don't be dismayed, arise. I want you to go right into the hearth of that thing that you've seen so much defeated and I want you to watch me work. I'll say it a thousand more times than right now. The marriage in this room that seems like it's done, there is still hope because of Christ. Apart from Christ, honestly, as I counsel some couples who are very distant from the Lord, uh, just in terms of not having a relationship, like there's no hope. Listen, like this is going downhill fast, but with Christ, even the hopelessness that you, that you feel and seem, just like your sin, can all of a sudden be not just covered over by love, but victory be had in Christ. Parents in this room who feel like it's done, like there is no going back, there's no way God will save my kids, there's no way we'll ever be a unified family Oh my goodness, the same God that parted the seas can step right up in that house and do a massive work. But you guys know what happens, right? We start being defeated, we start seeing defeat, and we want to back away. What I love in this text is God says, get up and go right back to where 36 were killed. Right back to where you retreated. Now, do you understand what he's asking? Some of the same warriors, listen to this, some of the same warriors who lost friends some of the same warriors who literally were, were standing next to some of their friends as the sword went through their stomach. I mean, ultimate defeat, ultimate hurt. And God is saying, get up, let's go. Right now, it's time to go back. The beauty of heading back into defeat is we get the opportunity to trust God maybe more than we ever have. And then I love how verse 1 ends. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. The question in defeat is will they trust that victory will be theirs? God promises it, but it is so difficult. It has to be so difficult for these soldiers to not believe that, like, God's got a trick up his sleeve. Oh, yeah, well, well, well maybe you're just going to, like, send us into the heart of AI to kill us because of the sin. Like, you're going to pull out the rug from underneath us. We get it, God. But no, God says, listen, you go back up there, and I'm going to give you this land, the king, and everything. It's yours. You're going vic- to be victorious. So go. Of all the statements that God could have said, he chooses, do not be fearful, And do not be dismayed in the moments after tragic sin. And then we see the incredible irony in verse 2. Look at this. And you shall do to Ai 
and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. A really quick uh, reminder of what happens in Jericho. Two walls fortifying the city, going completely around the city, and everything in it completely dies and is destroyed. So what God is saying is exactly what happened in Jericho is going to happen in Ai. Whoa, hold on, check this out. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Hold on a second. Do do you guys see the tragic irony here? Going into Jericho, he told the people, don't take anything. Achan doesn't listen, hides the stuff under his tent, and dies. Days later, the same God says, all right, when you go into Ai, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take everything. If Achan could have been a little bit patient. Right. It reminded me of this character. Next slide. You guys remember this? Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You guys remember this character? Is is her name Veruca? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Uh, She is the most detestable character in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Do you agree? Do you guys agree with me? Like, I, I, I find myself, every time I watch Willy Wonka, wanting to punch her, okay? And it's weird because I shouldn't, you know, A, because she's a female, B, because, you know, she's younger. But, like, I'm just like, why are you being so ungrateful? Like, Willy Wonka has awesome chocolate. Get off his back, you know? Like, I'm just, like, finding myself, you know, trying to be sympathetic. But the biggest reason that makes her uh, so detestable, next slide, is that, like, like this, is, this is her statement, right? You guys remember her song, you know, and she's talking to her dad like, I want it right now. Please take that down because that's going to that's gonna scare <laughs> some people. She's detestable. Let me make one more uh, step forward. She's repulsive. And yet the lust in our hearts of wanting now the things that seem shiny, the things that seem to fulfill. I picture like a, some of you guys have seen a toddler in a, in a high chair that wants something on the table but can't get it. And, and there are maybe some perfect toddlers that wait and sing Kumbaya, you know, until their parents do the airplane to them. But there's a lot of toddlers, fists clenched, beating the top, maybe unable to speak yet, but trust me, they're speaking through a loud shrill that's saying, I want it now. So you're asking, Mark, are you likening us to uh, Veruca and to a toddler? And my answer to that is, I sure am. God, I want it now. I don't want to wait on how you'll provide. Uh, Because I have a much better idea of what provision should look like. So God, trust me, follow me, come behind me. I'm going to go ahead as Achan did. I'm going to grab some of these things. It will provide for my family. Trust me, God. We continue to say, I want it now. And yet, in a few days, if Achan would have waited, he would have been able to enjoy the provision in God's timing. Uh, I hear uh, the statement made sometimes, um, oh, God will provide. And what they mean is, at the moment that you think 
like nothing absolutely can happen, then all of a sudden God's going to swoop in. I want to make sure we're together in that often false doctrinal statement. The provision of God comes in the form of his love. So the reality of God always providing is yes, he will always provide his love. But doesn't mean it's going to be the job right on time. Doesn't mean it's going to be the paycheck right in the moment that you most need it. Is it going to be the relationship or the person to listen to when you most need someone to listen? No. Sometimes yes. Sometimes it is grace. You guys know the story. The family that's down and out has lost everything. All of a sudden lands the job at the proper time. And certainly we give praise to God. But what if? What if it doesn't happen? Don't we still have his son Jesus? Don't we still have salvation? Don't we still have the love of God? When believers start believing that God's provision is in the form of his love, then we will be patient to embrace the gifts that he has. And if Achan just would have waited, instead like a little toddler, like a repulsive Veruca, he says, I want it now. I pray that wouldn't be us. Um, I want to help, lastly, shape up the topography for you. As God says, go up to Ai. Now, here's the kind of landscape that we're looking at. This is looking from, probably, Ai towards Jericho. So so to send soldiers, like some of you are are picturing a very, you know, easy jaunt march, okay? I, I don't prefer hiking. I know some of you guys love hiking. That's great. I don't like running or hiking, et cetera, okay? But, but listen, like, look at that. We're, he's looking towards, this picture is looking towards Jericho. So it's not just like once we get to the hills or, or the mountainous uh, terrain of, uh, of AI, it's like all the way there, okay? So he says, go, I'm going to give you the land. And then the last part of verse 2, very, very interesting that we'll focus on here in a second, lay an ambush against the city behind it, and some of you military war lovers are all of a sudden getting excited. Why? Because you're seeing a little bit of a different strategy, right? You're like, whoa, 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 I didn't know God could be this creative. So we're going to have an ambush now? Okay, like things just got dramatic. So look at verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose, what's the number there? 30 large, 30 grand. We go from three to 30 grand, okay? 3,000 to 30,000. That's multiple of like eight or something. It's a lot, okay? <laughs> Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor, carry the one, right? And sent them out by night. God is commanding this, a drastic increase in warriors, and then... Verse 4, behold, and, and he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. Now, just so we're all up to speed on what's been the militant strategy thus far. They come up to the massively fortified Jericho. And God says what every good general would say. Uh, so here's the plan, everyone. Um, 
for six days, you're going to march around the city, and you're going to blow some trumpets, and you're going to be quiet. And then on the seventh day, we're going we're gonna to walk around a few times more. And then guess what? By no effort of your own, the walls are going to fall down. So, so far, that's been the militant strategy. And now all of a sudden, God switches things up. Again, gets creative. This time, there's going to be an ambush. Now, if I'm uh, a soldier, I'm starting to wrestle in my heart with, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. Why would we ambush when we can just march around the city? You guys know what I'm saying? Hey, hey, God, like, it was just a few days ago. I'm pretty sure you got a decent memory. Do you remember what happened in Jericho? We kind of liked the trumpets, right? Like they harmonized, right? We kind of liked looking at the fear of the people. You know, we, we needed the exercise. Our Fitbit was keeping the steps. Like, God, could, couldn't, we, couldn't we just go back to the Jericho strategy? Uh, what I've learned about myself is that would be my precise response. Because I battle internally often living in the past. I've shared it before here. Um, I was a part of a massive college revival. I've, I've shared even this slant of the story. And for many of the first years of my ministry, I battled trying just to recreate what we had experienced in college. And then finally, 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 I learned this truth that I long to share with you tonight. Next slide. Listening to the Lord takes precedence over the past. Uh, You see, the problem is, if you live by the past alone, good wisdom would say you learn. You learn. You've experienced, you've seen, you've heard. Okay, you've been taught, you went through, you endured. And then it's very easy for us, my friends, very easy for us to take conventional wisdom to say, well, if we were to look at all the the things of the past, we would say, uh, if this lines up, and then if this lines up, and then if this thing happens, and if the solstice of the sun, you know, meets us, then all of a sudden, yes, we're going to do this. We need to follow suit. But I want to make sure everyone understands. I was forever believing, okay, if we start a worship gathering called Lounge Worship, just like we did in college, and if we play these exact songs, and if we have this exact formula, then revival will break out. When God was like, Mark, like, hold on a second. Like, like first of all, why do you think that you're, you can just like shove me in one of your grandma's like pickle jars, you know? Oh, why do you think you can just bottle me up and like shake me up like a genie, and then I'm, I'm just going to produce in the times and the moments that you want. Listening to the Lord always takes precedence over the past. The soldiers in this moment could have been, let's just do what we did in Jericho, and in so doing would have been disobedient, and in so doing would have found defeat. God has a new strategy. And if they're not willing to submit to that strategy, they will find themselves in the same place as Achan did. In disobedience and then, therefore, in judgment. But God has a new command. Uh, Just because, just because conventional wisdom says don't sell your home and make a missional move, even though all the things aren't practically lining up, if through the Holy Spirit all of a sudden God wakes you, your spouse, or yourself up 
and through his word and the confirmation of the, of the believers, you're, you're, you're like, listen, I, I know, I know conventional wisdom says I need to pay my bills, I, this needs to make sense, but, but how can I run from the call of God? God, God, speak to us. Listen, if you start reading the Bible, what you realize is there's very, very little that makes practical sense. You're like, hold on a second. You chose who? That's right, fishermen, Denny. He chose fishermen, brother. God love you, right? Right? You, you, you chose fishermen. And, and then you, you called little children to you and, and, and told them that unless they become like little kids, and, and then you're literally looking at the high priest in the, in the face and, and you're telling me like all of the commands, all of the, the pieces of the story of God go against practicality. So why? Why would we get to moments when God is giving us an opportunity to trust and we say, well, 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 conventional wisdom says... You guys know when we planted Matthias, that was a big battle. Uh, I had shared with Heidi and many others, I think we need to plant a church. It's scary. How the bill's going to get paid, don't know. Who's going to come? I said then, at least my mom, she's here tonight, still here. Praise the Lord, 11 years later. Um, I, I don't know. But I'm so thankful that all the conventional wisdom that said, don't meet on Wednesday... Don't name the church Matthias's lot. People will think it's a, it's a cult and that you, you know, sacrifice animals, okay? Like all of the things that people said, this isn't, I'm so thankful that I believe we trusted the Lord. Listening to God takes precedence over the past. Are you guys with me? It's a powerful, powerful truth. And so all of a sudden then we see more of the details of said ambush. Look at verse 5. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. This is brilliant. Of course, he's God, right? Verse 6. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before, so we will flee before them. Are you guys understanding this? We're going to see it next week unfold in the action, but let's set it up with this picture. There's going to be a group of soldiers that are going to lie in wait so that the people in AI can see them. And the people in AI are going to be like, hey, we, we, beat, those, we, we beat those people last time. Like, we don't need to wait here. Let's go ahead and go after them. Right. And so, in a massive trap, they're going to come out thinking they're going to be victorious again of the city and it's going to render them vulnerable. Verse 7, then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See I have commanded you, and I, I see something here in verse 8 that I have to make sure uh, you see with me. Do you notice the words here? You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. It's assuming obedience. I, I've noticed this in my parenting. Uh, I assume obedience in my children. I'll say things like, Oh, thank you so much for uh, cleaning up the toy room. 
And like, that's my way of saying clean up the toy room. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm assuming that by me already saying thank you, that they're just going to do it. Hey, thank you guys for getting dressed so quickly. I appreciate it. They're not dressed yet, you know? Again, I'm assuming obedience. Does it work that often? No, actually not so much, okay? And, and I've started to notice, like, this isn't working, man. I need to stop assuming obedience, start assuming disobedience. Then we'll celebrate when they do obey more, okay? But what I love, what I love about this moment, picture this. Joshua looking out at all the warriors, all the people, assuming right now that together, all of them, men of valor, are going to head right back into the place that they were just defeated. And he has the confidence in knowing that together, together, they're going to get to celebrate that, see that, trust in the Lord in that way. So um, let me bring you into my heart a little bit. We've been sharing pieces of this um, as we've gone on in the last uh, several weeks. And I just want to be very blunt, bold, clear with all of you. God has called us here together, not to a worship gathering, but to together be on mission for his glory, in his name, empowered by the spirit, and unified in every possible way. It's very, very easy in today's day and age to believe that ultimately you coming here is about you being fed and nurtured and coddled so that then you can walk away and feel good. But I want to remind you of what's happening here. We're coming together to rally and worship around the one who's worthy of it so we can be taught God's word together and encouraged by the fellowship of the body so that we may walk out of those two gray double doors and those four glass doors out there and show up at work tomorrow, empowered again at school tomorrow, empowered again through the spirit in our homes tonight, empowered again together as one body, as one church, saying, Lord, we do not want to be consumers. We don't want to uh, suck resources for ourselves. God, we long to die to ourselves with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I picture, I picture the chance that we have to assume obedience in one another. You see, we're going to go out and die to our flesh for the cause of Christ together. That's what we're going to do. Isn't it beautiful to think that we could just know and trust, not based on our own ability, but because of the spirit in us that we would go and do that? It's beautiful. I, I long for it, church. I long for it. And so the coming weeks and continually, I want to continue uh, for us to, to journey through that, to be challenged by that. But please know this. You're not here sitting in that nice black folded back seat to take. You're here to grow and learn as believers so that you can be sent out. And for the, those here that aren't believers, thank you for coming. It's an honor to have you here. Seriously, continue to come and be curious and learn. You're not going to be condemned here. You're going to be loved. He looks out, assumes obedience. And then finally, verse 9. So, Joshua, what's the word there? Sent them out. Could you imagine this moment? The heart's beating fast. You got the Rocky theme song playing, you know, like it's just a powerful moment. And they went to the place of ambush, and I love this leadership note, and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai, look at this, 
But Joshua spent that night among the people, sleeping with his troops. How old is he? You guys remember? Okay, 90-ish, sleeping on the ground with his people, loving his people, leading his people. This story, though, brings to light one very, very powerful truth. You guys remember verse 1? And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. That word dismayed is super interesting. It's so interesting uh, that I involved uh, our pastor Jared Corzine here, who is a, who's a resident Greek and Hebrew scholar. And here's what he told me, okay? Here's what the word dismayed means. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is tahat, and it means shattered, broken, terrified. So what God is saying is, do not be afraid and do not be shattered. Again, this is very, very curious. Why? Because they're just coming out of this massive sin. And yet he says, do not be shattered. So, earlier, I asked you if your view of God changes with the seasons. I want to change the question slightly and ask it this way. Next slide. Does your view of God change with your sin? In other words, when you find yourselves in habitual, repetitive denial of the name of Christ, when you find yourself feasting off the faucet of your flesh, when you find yourself unbelievably selfish, Does that sin impact your view of God? That's my question. And if it does, I want you to understand something right now. If that sin impacts your view of God, it has tremendous potential power. And maybe some of you will relate to some of these statements. Next slide. Let's say it this way. Next slide if you can, Andrew. Thanks, brother. We up there? Okay. In the wake of your sin, do any of these statements align with how you view God? You sin, just like Achan did. The nation of Israel, God's anger burns hot. I'm wondering if this statement is something that you've ever said before. Next slide. I'm just waiting for him to punish me. Anything that goes wrong, I attribute to God's punishing response to my sin. Have some of you had this before? You sinned that morning and then you pull into Walmart and like three parking spots are taken and you're like, seriously, God? <laughs> All right, God, so we're even now, right? And then, you know, a parking spot opens. You're like, whew, I thought so, right? Okay, we're all good. Uh, when you sin, some of you Spend so much time fearful that God is after you, waiting to punish, waiting to hurt, waiting to repay evil for evil. Have you ever struggled with that before? Have you ever thought that before? Have you thought that today? How about this next statement? I can't approach him. He doesn't want to talk to me. 
I've disappointed him too much. This is a very natural response because most of our human relationships take this response. Cold shoulder, don't talk it out, don't be honest, don't approach. For some of you who grew up in homes that were that way, when you disappointed dad or mom, you didn't want to step to them because you were afraid of what they might say, and so it, it just created distance. And so now you believe, all right, if I've sinned, I, I'm, not, I'm going to stop praying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop reading or pursuing him, I, I don't want communion with him because I don't want it to come up. Because I know he's already too disappointed in me. Like, this isn't going to work. Is it possible? Listen, this is so scary. Is it possible that some of you have spent the last two, three, four, five years living in this reality? I mean, three days is plenty. But some of you have spent years or months existing in this, I'm not going to approach him because he's too disappointed in me. Next slide. How about this one? Uh, He's going to keep forgiving me, so what's the big deal? I'll obey again when I need something. Hello, somebody. Uh, The principle that I've taught before is the negotiation with God. I'm going to keep going ahead and viewing you, God, as my pawn and puppet until... Something happens that I need some supernatural help. And then I'll start to uh, understand that maybe I, I need to at least act like I'll submit to you so I'll get what I want. Like a, min, uh, like a min, manipulative child. Somehow thinking and believing that God isn't seeing the innards of your heart. I'll just do whatever I want. He's going to keep forgiving me. No big deal. We figure this out, this relationship. When I need something, I'll turn it around. I'll stop. I'll submit. How about this one? Anyone relate to this? His love can't keep going. I've done too much and not given enough. He will disown me. I'm absolutely 100% sure of it. Have you ever felt the weight of this before? Don't you think that a very natural response of God would have been in the face of ache and sin? I can't believe you people. What's your problem? I've done so much for you. You guys better be waiting on your punishment too. And yet God says... Do not be fearful and do not be shattered, dismayed, broken. He says, arise. Go right into the face of defeat and watch how I can restore and watch how I can empower and watch how I can do something with your sin." That will show you just how godly, awesome, loving, and merciful I really am. What if, 
The aftermath of our sin was one of the greatest opportunities we had to commune with God, not giving us a license for more sin, but seeing the grace that he would extend in the post-aftermath of it all when he would look at us and say, don't be fearful, don't be dismayed, let's go. And yet, you know, just like me, my natural tendency is to pout and whine, put myself in a corner, feel bad, feel bad to a place where the, keep, uh, where, where the guilt is, is heaping on, feel bad to a place where I, like all the lies that the enemy is telling me, these statements, all the lies that are running through, cycling through my head, I'm just like cowering, cowering more and more and more when the voice of God is, Listen, don't be afraid. I've dealt with that sin. I've dealt with it. Get up, follower of mine. It's not lessening the impact or the weight of you disobeying me, but please don't lessen the weight of what I've done with that sin. What's crazy to me is that David, pre the incarnation of Jesus, Pre-Christ coming, flesh and blood. David commits adultery. He murders to cover it up. We've talked about it before recently. But David, of all people, of all people, made this statement in Psalm 103. I mean, David knows transgression. He knows sin. He knows the pain inflicted by his decisions. He knows sleepless nights. But can I tell you what also David knows? He knows freedom. He knows forgiveness. He knows that his transgressions have been separated as far as the east is from the west. And so when God looks at the nation of Israel and says, let's go, don't be fearful, don't be broken, stand up, church. Listen, we have the chance tonight to embrace the victory that Christ has won over our sin. And some of you who have spent years in the cave because you believed that God wouldn't accept you, that he was too disappointed, that you couldn't approach him. The freedom of Christ is come. Right now. Don't wait another day. Come out of the cave. I'm going to take the yoke of slavery off. I'm going to give you now a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light for freedom Christ has set us free. That is the truth of our view of God in sin is that he is still the gracious God who saves. Let's stand together. John's Gospel 
records a story. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he says, I thirst. Those that are below lift up for him a sponge of sour liquid. And what the scripture says is that just after he tastes that sour liquid, Jesus utters three words. It's dealt with. It's done. The curtain has been torn in two. Your sin doesn't have power anymore. Our sins crucified at the cross of Christ. He says it is finished. Not for one moment in time, but to echo through buildings just like this hundreds of years later that his people, his followers, those who are longing to worship and glorify him could arise in freedom, could come out of the caves in victory, could go right back into the places that they've been defeated and beat down and pressed in, but that all of a sudden, could be reminded and hear the words it's dealt with it's done it's finished the penalty has been paid so be free not with a license to sin but with a heart by the grace of God longing to show the world the freedom that comes in him and so tonight church, those of us who are followers of the King, we're going to come to the table, the table of celebration, the table of remembrance, as we remember the broken, shed body of Christ, as he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, take and eat. We're going to take a piece of that bread off here on the table and dip it in the cup, a reminder of his shed blood. And for some of you, this walk to this table right now will be laying down the lies that you've believed forever. The view of God that has changed in light of your sin. Let me tell you this. He is the God of the universe who's extending the welcome of his son to you tonight. So church, let's come to the table of freedom and celebrate the person of Christ.